I look back, there were earlier hints that I, uh, that I, you know, love to do business, but that was probably the moment when I realized I want to become an entrepreneur. I want to organize things. That's for me the, you know, as an entrepreneur, you just make things out of nothing. You organize, you orchestrate, and uh, eventually create an event, a product, a service, um, whatever it is. Holger Syme is the co-founder and former CEO of Blinkist. If you're not familiar with Blinkist, they're a subscription service that summarizes non-fiction books in 15-minute explainers. The company was founded as a solution to that age-old problem. So much to do, so little time. Holger and his fellow co-founders, Tobias Balling, Nicholas Jansen, and Sebastian Klein, wanted to find a way to read more books in less time while together in college in 2012. Inspired by the note-taking methods they were using in their studies, they created an app that essentially made these notes available to all. Blinkist went public the following year, and since then, the app has been downloaded 26 million times. They were acquired by GoOne in May 2023, with Holger staying on as Chief Operating Officer. We don't know how much they were bought for, but GoOne CEO Andrew Barnes has implied it was significantly bigger than the company's previous $160 million valuation. So, how did they do it? It's a classic tale of good business practices being put to use wherever possible. His calm, modest and thoughtful nature made him instantly likeable and clearly played a huge part in the company's journey. You can tell he's taken a lot from the right influences he's read from. There's a lot to learn here. And what lit the fire that drove Holger to succeed? Well, it starts all the way back in childhood. I grew up in a small village um, in the middle of Germany with 500 inhabitants. Uh, when we onboard new employees and I talk to them, I always make it a little challenge who grew up in a village, in a smaller village than I did. Um, and haven't found many in Team Blinkist that can beat that. Grew up in a small village with 500 inhabitants. Uh, my mother is a teacher. My dad uh, studied physics and worked in, a, in an IT company. Um, I'm the third out of four siblings, so I have an older sister, an older brother, and a younger brother. Grew up in an old farmhouse. My grandparents, so the parents of my dad, were living there with us um, when I was really young. We still had a lot of animals, pigs and chicken and uh, rabbits. Pretty good childhood. Uh, I was able to play on the streets um, without um, having to worry to be hit by a car. Now that I have two kids on my um, myself, I'm wondering whether I want to continue to live in the city or want to uh, move a little bit to the suburbs to give them something similar um, while they're young. So um, my closest friends are the friends that I met in kindergarten elementary school. So one of the big advantages for me growing up in that village was that life was pretty stable. I didn't, you know, we didn't move places. No one moved places. It was a um, a, a small, boring village that certainly came with some disadvantages. But the big advantage is that I really was able to grow roots, um, to grow very deep friendships early on that I can still rely on. We we still have like I have a group of five very close friends we meet once a year, and and we've we've been with each other since uh, fifth grade in, in school. Basically, I like that part of my childhood a lot. Any parts of your childhood you didn't enjoy so much? When I grew up, I had um, a weird thing on my ear. My, my, my right ear wasn't really, didn't look like an ear. It wasn't, um, wasn't fully developed. That can happen spontaneously while you're, uh, while, while the, the little baby grows. That's probably the, the one thing that made my childhood a little tough because 
kids are cruel. Uh, they don't, uh, you know, they, they go where it hurts. Um, find your weakest spot, basically. So I had some some challenges being called names. People called that out. Whenever I got into a new group, I felt insecure. I wanted that kind of created some insecurities for me and made it a little harder for me to feel at ease and feel safe in new groups um still have to i mean we all have things um that still haunt us in life so i think there are a lot of my personality or some, some traits of my personality probably go back to that to a certain extent having this this condition and having this this inner child in me um that that got um that got bullied um, because of that um probably is also one reason of my drive to show it to others what i can accomplish so i have a really strong drive to to be successful, to do great things. Uh, that, that drive helped me in my journey to become an entrepreneur and uh, entrepreneur and keep pushing and keep going um, where, when things are tough. And look, who knows? Maybe if I hadn't grown up with that condition or had grown up in a big city, I would want my kids now to also grow up in a big city. So it's, uh, yeah, but it's wherever it came from, it's, uh, um, I really think whatever I experienced shaped me to who I am today and I'm, I'm happy with who I am today and it's all right. I've certainly made peace with, with that part of my history and, and I'm not that, I don't feel hurt by it or think like I still have to prove the world something or I I was very close with my, in, in terms of age difference, my, my older brother uh, is just one year older than, than I am and so... We had a, a really love-hate relationship when we were younger. We were really competitive because we were so close. So uh, my mom used to tell a story, and I, I still remember that story. We like we were doing a swim class together, uh, and then there was, you know, in, in Germany you have to, or you can get certain um, certain medals that proves how how good you can swim. So we were going for that uh, gold medal in, you know, for 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 kids in Germany, um, and I think you needed proof that you can swim 600 meters, something like that. Uh, and my brother and I were doing it at the same time. And then the guy who was taking the time and the, the closer we got to the, you know, to the last stretch, the faster we would get uh, because we both wanted to win. And the guy who was taking the time, he was just shaking his head. He, he had never seen something like that, that kids get faster um, the longer it goes. Certainly being um, so close in age to my brother, maybe... Um, gave me some sort of the competitive edge that is certainly helpful in all the, this competitiveness, this wanting to to be better uh, than the rest, or this ambition to uh, to to be uh, better and and achieve something something great. Maybe that's also something that that helped. As I said, my my, my mom was a teacher, my dad uh, studied physics, so they didn't. I didn't have an entrepreneur in my family, and no one who really showed me what I'm capable of and that I that are that I'm passionate and, and capable of being an entrepreneur and doing things. Um, but that came in school, I was lucky enough to have a teacher and in certain certain situations in school that helped me to really find that skill and realize uh, where where my ikigai is, if you will. Um, and uh, there was this one moment in 12th grade in, in my school. Um, every year, um, students from the 12th grade organize a prom, like an event where grade 11, 12, 13 come together with teachers, some parents and have, have a good good night with some entertainment and when it was our turn I showed up to organize it or to take the lead on it because I love to organize things and thought that's that's a cool project you know did my thing previous years there was always a, a pretty a similar recipe to doing these things and people would just do it again and again and my group so I uh, with my leadership and but a lot of people in, um, were involved in that we thought let's do something different Let, let's do something new let's do something that we we like uh, an event that is entertaining and so we just put it together and it, it felt like, yeah, we're just doing our thing. We're having fun. We got some inspiration from 
Back then, MTV Music Awards were a big thing in Germany. So we took some inspiration from that event. We took some, you know, others and, and, and created uh, a nice event with some videos where we did stunts. Back then, Jackass was a big thing. I, it's, it's a long time ago. I don't know whether, whether it was also big in the UK. So we did some Jackass videos. Um, do you still, do you still have them? I feel like you need to send them to us. So when we're cutting together some edits, we've got. I, I, I can, I, I, I can, I can dig them out. Um, yeah. um, they are certainly, uh, they're certainly, um, well, conserved so we put this together and it felt like like nothing special. it felt just like you know we're having fun we're organizing something um on the night of the event teachers started to come to me and say this is this is so special we haven't seen such a thing in the past 20 years that we've been at this school and you know that night it felt like yeah of course you're saying this every year you you want to make students happy but since then every year you know we had set the new standard of how these proms were organized um since then everything changed and teachers late you know sometimes when i got back to school teachers told me what you did back then it's set a complete new standard and it was so so unseen of that that people from 12th grade can do can put something like that together so i felt always like it wasn't something special i mean um um don't don't make such a big fuss out of it but it the amount of feedback i got really helped me understand because i'm i'm a humble person i'm not a like my, my parents didn't raise us or you know they, they didn't give us a lot of recognition saying are oh, you doing this great and that great so i i don't believe that i'm great at anything I, i'm rather um a, a little imposter imposter if you will but this feedback really showed me well if if everyone says says it i may be onto something here that may be a, a skill that I'm that I'm really good at. I also knew I'm really passionate about it. I had so much fun doing this, and I took so much pride in, in putting that together. I didn't know what ikigai is back then, uh, but when I read about it later, I thought this is maybe the moment where I where I um, found my ikigai, where I found what I'm good at and what I'm passionate about, and what the world needs, basically. What I what I can also put to to work. And this is if I look back, there were earlier hints that I uh, that I you know love to do business, but that was probably the moment. Um, when I realized I want to become an entrepreneur, I want to organize things. That's for me the, you know, as an entrepreneur, you just make things out of nothing. You organize, you orchestrate and eventually create an event, a product, a service, um, whatever it is. Two things really matter when you're doing entrepreneurship. Number one, the category, because you're going to have to become a sector expert to some extent. So you better enjoy learning about it because it's basically going to become your reality. You're going to become super knowledgeable by osmosis. And if you don't care, that's actually quite a disappointing way to spend your time. And the second is who you spend your time with. So picking a good team and actually enjoying who you work with. These two things are essentially going to shape your entire reality of entrepreneurship. Um, I was working with people that I quite liked, but I, it was in a category I didn't like. And I went to a talk and this guy got up there and he started talking about Ikigai. And this chart went on the screen and it just said, it's, you know, it was the classic Venn diagram-y thing of Ikigai, do what you love, that makes an impact to other people, that you're really good at, and all of these things. And I was just like, oh my God, I can't tick any of those things. Not like I could tick two of them, so I'm close to my purpose. I was like, not even one of them. Wow, that's actually really powerful. And I committed there and then seeing this diagram for the first time, I committed to find a way out of that job out of that business that I was the founder of, which as you know, isn't just like quitting a job, it's super complicated. Um, and that whenever I would focus on the next business, whatever it might be, I would put that in front of me and make sure that I was working towards it. It's amazing how a simple idea can genuinely change your life. Absolutely, yeah. Early on in my in my Blinkist career, I was uh, reading Growth Mindset from Carol Dweck and a book I'll absolutely love. And 
Only when I read it uh, did I realize that I was raised with a uh, with a fixed mindset. Early on, you know, early days as a leader, I I would judge people with a fixed mindset. Like I would make make my mind up about someone. Are ah, you not good at this? Are you good at that? And then I had my picture of people, and eventually reading this book and realizing, well, I I got it all wrong. My mom got it all wrong, and um, um, I, I need to change. That was a really really big impact for me personally to to you know to to be a little easier on me and give me more time and uh, to to learn new things uh and and also but also for for others for my colleagues for the people that that worked at blinkist and another book i i absolutely love is uh five dysfunctions of a team by patrick lencioni um oh it's so good so good please uh summarize it for us in under three minutes olga yeah blinkist style (laughs) it basically i mean it, it it shows uh um what makes a team an either high-performing or dysfunctional team. It all starts with trust. You need the, the, the core base. If you don't have high trust in a team, you can you can have a group of in, exceptional individuals. If they don't trust each other, they will never become a high-performing team. And then it builds on top based on trust. You need to be able to have courageous conversations, uh, to lean into conflict instead of having artificial harmony. You need to hold each other accountable. You need to speak with one voice, et cetera, et cetera. And... Um, it shifted my focus from judging individuals on their capability and hiring individuals and trying to manage them to do their job to looking at the team. Um, because I, uh, back then when I got introduced to this topic, we had some issues in the founding, in the founder team where we realized we were not very clear on where we want to take the business, how we want to work, what our ways of work and what, what values do we want to, um, uphold, et cetera, et cetera. And, we are always fighting about tactical stuff, but we are not getting to the root of things because we're just fighting about stupid stuff. That book helped me to understand the root. It starts with trust. It starts with alignment on, on, on values. How does the team work? How does my leadership team work? Do we have a functional team? Well, if, if not, what's missing? I, I'm a really vulnerable leader. I um, um, Sometimes maybe even too much, but I try to lead by example to set the tone and um, getting naked early on um, in the metaphorical sense of to, to make it easier for people to also share uh, share their challenges so we have trust and then can help each other and, and become really team, team one. Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a constant journey. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, 
If you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Five dysfunctions of the team might be the perfect example book to unpack and find out, A, is that a Blinkist? And B, the reason Five Dysfunctions of a Team is actually such a good book, because it's a fiction, which is super unusual for a business book, there's something about being carried by the narrative that the message really lands. And I find with Blinkist, when I'm trying to learn, the stuff that works so well for me is where there's there's lessons to be learned, like, like pure lessons. I really didn't, you know, could this have been a blog post is the perfect example of most, most books. And it's like, oh, no, it's too long for a blog post. Perfect for a Blinkist. And I feel like endless business books fall into that area. Five dysfunctions of a team. Love to just side debate this with you for a moment. Better as a whole book or better as a Blinkist? And do you kind of know what I'm talking about when I say you kind of lose the narrative by by going straight to the lessons? I absolutely know what you're talking about with five dysfunctions in particular because it has this fiction approach, but also in general. And I I would say in general, it's always better to read the full book than to just read the blinks. Um, like there's, I mean, obviously there are better books and worse books. And maybe you could argue some books are so bad that it's actually better to just read the blinks and not the full book. But in general, um, if you really want to um, dig deep into a topic, uh, we need to hear a lot of anecdotes, hear different perspectives. Uh, we need to have some repetition. Business books uh, have a certain length to make them books. So there are certain economic, uh, you know, uh, commercial reasons by the publishers. But then also there, there's also a minimum number of pages. Um, you know, maybe a business book doesn't need to have 300 pages, but it certainly also uh, just 10 pages would be too too little. In general, if you want to dig deep into a topic, it's always good to read or listen to the full book. Our intention with Blinkist uh, has never been and, 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 and still isn't to, to replace the full book. We, but the problem with books is there are so many, you don't know where to start. And ultimately, you want to create a habit and then you don't. When you have maybe 15 minutes to kill, you don't pick up a book. You turn to your smartphone. You, In the best case, you listen to a po- podcast. In the worst case, you scroll on social media or check your inbox for the 15th time. Just see that nothing new is there. And we created Blinkist to to help you fill these times with something more meaningful, let you dip your toes into a topic. And I think there's a reason why we have healthy snacks and there's a reason why we have three-course dinners. I like to think of Blinkist as the healthy snack for in-between. It gives you an idea, it, gives you, it nudges you uh, with something interesting. And, and, and that's what we hear from a lot of our users, that they... Thanks to us, they have discovered a new title. They have discovered a topic and, and then uh, dig deeper into it by reading the full book. And um, so we have been the entry point, the gateway track to learning, if you will. And then it's not an either or, it's a both end. That's how I use Blinkist. That's how most customers use Blinkist. And by now, also publishers and authors have realized it. Uh, it's been a long a long journey to to turn that industry around and make them turn them from thinking that this is cannibalizing book sales and something bad towards this is great. This gives me a better audience to people who are who otherwise I would not reach. Interesting. Do you know what percentage of your audience are using it as entry point 
And I think I'm asking that question because I've never used Blinkist as an entry point to a book ever. I've only ever used it, and I use it all the time for this reason, as the, oh, you know what? I don't even remember, like, the key lessons. I've read so many business books. I'm like, a, I read about a book a week. Listen to, it's worth saying. Listen to a book a week. That's where I find Blinkist so useful because I think the old model is, I was like, oh, actually, Ray Dalio principles. What, what? I mean, I, I feel like that was such an impactful book for me and yet kind of embarrassed to say I don't even remember a single principle in there. So was it good? I'm like, I actually, Blinkist, perfect. Because you, you, the information's in there, it just needs like rejigging. So how many of your, like what kind of uh, proportion roughly of your audience do you reckon use Blinkist like me versus for discovery? Yeah, so, so we know in general that around about two-thirds of our audience are avid book readers. Uh, so they use, a, use us either as an entry point to discover what they want to read next or as a recap, uh, um, as, as you described. I don't know how, how that splits. Most people use it for both. So they use it both before and after. And then one-third of the audience roughly um, doesn't engage with books. They, they learn through YouTube, through podcasts, through Blinks. You know, they have other... Um, a different information diet. Occasionally pick up a book when they discover something with Blinkist, but in general say they uh, they get their information from from other sources. So was Blinkist your first business idea? It was the first real business. I did a, during studies with um, two of my three co-founders, we started a student consultancy. So we were in, in university, we met each other, we realized being we love being entrepreneurs and then we jumped at the first thing that came to our mind, uh, which was let's start a student consultancy to um, sell projects to companies to, you know, put our skills to use, earn some money. And we realized, um, so we had the idea, we thought of a name, um, we gave it a, um, you know, made a, a small business plan and then we presented it to other students. So we just went into lectures, said, hey, can we have five minutes? We want to present the thing. And all of a sudden had an, a, non, a not-for-profit organization of um, almost 100 students that wanted to, 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 to work with us on that. And that it still exists. So, you know, it's handed from, from generation to generation. So it's still students are still using it to practice their skills to work with companies. So that was the first organization that I started. And another confirmation that somehow, like, I, I don't seem to be completely stupid when it comes to that because it, it worked. People followed and it was successful. And then Blinkist was the first commercial organization we started. It was after studies. We were still, I mean, I, that village, you know, I grew up conservatively. So somehow I wasn't bold enough to say to quit my, you quit university before I graduated. So I graduated as, uh, um, uh, to make my parents happy, to also make me my inner, you know, to, to check that box. We didn't have, a great idea right after graduation. So all of us started other jobs. Um, so I was in a corporate job for one and a half years and then started Blinkist because then, you know, we were constantly meeting to brainstorm ideas to think what are problems that I was solving uh, and worth starting a company around. Eventually, after one, one and a half years in, in the job, we had the idea for Blinkist and then jumped into the cold water. That was early 2012 when we are like the initial idea, the, the first time I discussed with Niklas was one of my co-founders. The idea was when he visited me in Seattle, I was working for T-Mobile US in Seattle and, and we talked about it and, um, and then kind of make a business plan, think deeper about it, talk to potential customers, et cetera, et cetera. But it still took until April before I quit my job. Um, it still took me a while to really say, okay, am I quitting my job now? With a, am, am I saying no to a pretty safe, straightforward corporate career? I remember I was really afraid back then. I was not afraid to fail um, because I think, you know, only every 10 startup uh, makes it. 
I was afraid to fail fast. I didn't want to quit my job and tell everyone I'm becoming an entrepreneur, entrepreneur now. And then after six months running out of money and, and being a failure, that was my biggest fear back then. As I say, the rest is history. I mean, it's been a long and windy road the last 10 years, but um, um, I'm really glad that I jumped into the cold water back then. Where did the idea come from? So it was a, one of these serendipitous processes. So um, one of my co-founders read and summarized books while we were studying. So he had a habit of sometimes sending emails with his notes to his friends for books he read. Um, so and, and we thought about can that become a business back then, but then didn't pursue the idea further. And then when, when we were brainstorming ideas in 2011, that was uh, when smartphones were booming or starting to boom, where the first app-focused businesses or the first apps uh, became businesses, basically. Um, so a lot of our brainstorms were focused around, okay, there's this new device. What can we do on this device? This is a big playing field, a big canvas to, uh, to, to paint on. So we're thinking of what can we do? And, and one idea we had was to build an app that helps you learn something in between. We were always, a lot of our ideas uh, centered around learning because that was always a passion to, um, to learn. Also something we did, this whole student consultancy project was also ultimately not about earning money. It was about learning, like uh, putting our skills to use in companies. And so, yeah, we had this idea. We called it Waitmate, a mate that helps you fill your waiting times with something uh, meaningful but eventually thought if it's just a random thing to learn in between, you could go to Wikipedia. It's not tangible enough. It's not valuable enough. And then we thought, well, there were these book summaries back then. Um, Sebastian, you, you did these, took these notes and sent them around. And that was a mobile format. That was a format that um, can be, you know, that, that people can read on the go on a smartphone. And, and then we combined these two things and said an app that, you know, a format that fits into waiting times that fits on a smartphone screen but the book as an as a starting point as a foundation because that's tangible to people 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 want to read more books people have a willingness to pay for books uh, etc cetera, etc cetera. and when we had these two combined we thought we we have it there's um there's a need there's a problem or um a desire to read more to learn more there's a window of opportunity because consumption patterns were uh, shifting uh, with the rise of smartphones there's uh, four dudes who desperately want to start a company and become entrepreneurs. So, so let's do it. Interesting. So did you, did you basically think that the initial audience that you're targeting are other people like you and me, entrepreneurs specifically? Is that who you had in mind? Yes, that that's what we implicitly had in mind. We were ultimately building a product for us, for young professionals, you know, people after university starting their first jobs make a progress in their career, learn more professionally, personally, etc. That that was the initial audience we had in mind. We weren't really, didn't have a structured process where we thought, let's make a, a deep market study. Let's look at the different audiences and then, then look who's the best audience. But we we're really pragmatic. We thought people like us are probably the early adopters of smartphones. They have a certain willingness to pay. They have a desire and a need to learn. Let's just start there and, and see where, where, where this takes us. And entrepreneurs and young professionals in general, also non-entrepreneurs, but people starting their careers, we're our early adopter, adopters. And I mean, we still have uh, a lot of entrepreneurs using Blinkist, but also it's, it's such a broad audience by now. We have people who want to get smarter about history and just, you know, uh, want to improve their general knowledge, just just learn for curiosity. We have people who are first time parents and, and want to dig into parenting literature in the little time they have. Oh, I've just realized I've missed an opportunity. I read the parenting books my wife asked me to read, and that would have been the perfect Blinks. 
Absolutely. Oh my God, so many of those really don't need to be whole books. I mean, I read one on uh, sleep training. Which one did you? Yeah. I, this is one that I really remember. Whatever sleep training book that everyone recommends, and I read it, and it's like eight hours, and you're like, oh, you're like one chapter in, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, that seems like the right thing to do. But I guess that there's another seven hours and 50 minutes, maybe they're going to say something else. Eight hours later, I just got into this ridiculous situation. My wife is very much like, I don't want to read it. This is your thing. Like you, you sorted out. Anyway, I told her exactly what the book said. And she was like, there's no way I'm doing that. I'm like, well, what? (laughs) I mean, I definitely want the eight hours back. I could have read anything else. This was the most dry book ever. And we're not even using it. Yeah. That is a perfect example. So Blinkist journey all straight up and to the right, right? No, no problems, no mistakes. Everything was easy. And then you sold one day and here you are. Of course, that's it. Podcast done. Uh, Thank you for getting naked in true German style and being vulnerable with us. Um, okay, talk, talk to me about your uh, your challenges in the early years. What kind of challenges did you face? We've made so many mistakes early on, and I'm still making mistakes uh, these days. Uh, one of the biggest, we were initially building a rocket ship. We were not focusing on what is the MVP, what is the core value that, what is our core hi- hypothesis around the value. I think in hindsight, we could have started Blinkist as an email newsletter to create the content and then send you a Blink every day or every week for a small subscription. We would have not needed all these developers, all these designers, all this long process to develop an app. And we could have still gotten to our first 1,000 customers to validate, do people want to pay for this content? How do we find these people, et cetera, et cetera. But we built an app. We had ideas of building a knowledge graph uh, that connects certain insights with each other. We had all these ideas and um, got lost in a very complex product and launched too late. Uh, so, so we, we, we started in, in June 2012, like officially started. Um, it took us until January 2013 to launch our first app. And then we had already hired developers, designers, et cetera. Um, so we had already had increased our cost base that we were quickly running out of money. So by the end of 2013, our seed money was gone and we did not have product market fit. Um, we did not have figured out how do we, how do we do pricing? Do we do single purchases? Do we do subscription? Where do we find those people? How, how does marketing work, et cetera? And we were, we were bankrupt. We were technically running out of money. Um, I was chasing investors. Uh, everyone said no. And we had to, um, stop paying salaries for two months. Then luckily, uh, luckily found an invest, found two investors who said they, they believe enough in us uh, and who funded us. Um, that was in early 2014. So that was a near-death experience for us as a business. Uh, and it was totally our fault. We didn't think from the end back then. We thought, now we have this money. Let's let's hire people. Let's build our you know our dream. Let's not 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 think about what do customers want, but let's build what we want, what our vision is. And um, and we're pretty naive. We we didn't think, okay, what do we with the money we've got. What do we need to prove once the money is gone uh, so we get the next check? Uh, that was an early lesson that we had and a pretty low point um, because I, I thought we're not done yet. We, we um, I, I believed in that idea and I, I kind of uh, realized what we've done wrong. Uh, and I was like, please give us another chance. Someone give us money. We, we figured it out now. And luckily that happened. Another mistake we've made early on, we started in German only. We thought... 
Nordash is saying, you know, you need to be embarrassed by your by your first launch. Otherwise, you've you you've you've launched too late. And we thought we don't want to embarrass ourselves, so let's launch in a small. Let's only launch into the German market and not not in English, um, because then we don't embarrass ourselves in front of the world and we don't hurt our brand early on, etc. And that's bullshit because you we didn't have a brand uh, and and no one cared. Um, and as a matter of fact, uh, Germans are, always take a year or two longer to jump onto new trends. Uh, so. In hindsight, if we had launched uh, an English-speaking world first, we would have gotten early adopters much faster just because there are more uh, in the world. But then also, um, especially Americans tend to be more progressive and, and jump on digital subscription models. Paying for digital content was a thing and was no thing in 2012. And Spotify and Netflix paved the way uh, away eventually. Yeah, and especially not in Germany, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but we choose, we, we picked the, uh, um, not the biggest and then rather probably one of the harder markets, uh, for our business to start. We had all this figured out by 23rd, end of the 2013. Luckily found another, uh, investor. And then starting in 2014, things started to move a little smoother. We then launched in English. We, we added audio in 2014. We, we started text only, but, um, Luckily, so early on in 2014 that this podcast trend is, is, is coming up. So we should also add audio and learn how to do digital marketing. Um, now, you know, Facebook and all these marketing platforms are a kind of commodity. Back then, it was still early days and it took us a while to, to dig into it and uh, learning how this works. Also daring to spend money on marketing uh, and trusting that it will come back through through customers. So 2014 was really the year where we've checked a lot of boxes, figured a lot of things out, where we had a lot of breakthroughs in different things. And since then, it's been a, for a couple of years under 2019, a pretty smooth up and to the right story where we tripled, tripled, doubled, doubled uh, the business, uh, where things were um, a well-oiled growth engine through Facebook and other uh, digital marketing uh, channels. Things were good. Um, things were good on the business side, on the commercial side. In terms of team building, um, we had a lot of mess where there were these founder conflicts that I referred to and um, eventually one founder left. Um, so so we had that. Uh, that was a big hit for all of, all four of us. Uh, we, we started this together. We always had that dream to bring it to a close together. But then we had to split up, basically. Um, that was tough for us, also tough for the team. It was a pretty, yeah, just a, a big moment, basically, uh, for to making out of um, three founders out of four. So when did that happen? That was in 2015. Um, that was before Series A. We were still in seed stage, but but things were starting to work on the commercial side. And how much had you raised by then, do you mind my asking? Um, I think by, by then we had raised maybe a million um, in seed funding. Um, that was back back these days, a million was still a lot. Now it's a, a pre-seed check. Yeah, of course. Why? So what happened? Why was the founder leaving? Um, I think ultimately we realized that we weren't working well together anymore. We became, we moved from a high performing team to a rather dysfunctional leadership team. We were not aligned uh, in regard to how to run the business. How much, how hard do we work? How much do we delegate versus getting, getting our hands dirty ourselves? How do we take decisions? Do we um, give everyone their little, uh, their little area where they can decide freely? A lot of conflict around decision making and who who ultimately uh, takes the last decision. How do we ensure we move fast into a consistent direction? I think normal things that every team probably encounters and um, 
in a founding team, my experience is it's even harder because you kind of, you're, you're married. Uh, if you hired someone, then it's a little easier to eventually say, well, I'm here to stay because I started the business. So you, you need to go. Um, also that, that I found tough, um, and had to learn, but that's a little easier. But a founding team is, if you split up, it's like a divorce. And that, that was, um, really painful back then. Fortunately, um, we managed it well together. So the team didn't take a big hit. We kind of left on good terms. And uh, so, so it didn't have a big commercial impact in that year. I mean, that was the year where we raised our Series A, but emotionally it was very tough to go through this. Sometimes it feels like I tend to realize um, that a certain decision is right. Uh, so I feel it, but I need someone to give me permission to take it. It sounds weird, but sometimes I need someone to that I can just share my thoughts with, my thought process, and then someone who nods and says, Holger, that makes sense. Well, what are you waiting for? So speaking about unleashing the business, it's Series A. What was the plan? Take me through the next phase of growth. Yeah. 2015, we were approaching one and a half million of annual recurring revenue and then raised, uh, I think, four million in new funds. Um, well, the numbers seem small right now. Back then, it was an, a good, good Series A. Um, we raised them from a, um, a German and a U.S. investor. So we were already um, since a year, we were, we were having English, um, English content. We were seeing that there's a lot of interest from particularly the U.S., but English speaking markets in general. And we we're on a trajectory to really become a global business because there are book readers everywhere in the world. And a lot of times, uh, even if their native uh, language is not English, they happen to, to read the books in English. So we were on a trajectory to becoming a really global business out of Berlin and had a strong German, a strong New York based investor. And we wanted to conquer the world. We wanted to really build um, a strong consumer brand in particularly in the US as our lead market and got going. We, we hired more people. We hired our first more senior performance marketer. Um, um, like we, we built a strong marketing team. We hired our first product manager. Early employees that are um, also with us also were, were hired in these 20, in these uh, years to 2014, 2015. Get clicked with performance marketing. We cracked Facebook as our first channel. There are channels like Outbrain and Tabula, paid content, you know, these little ads that you see um, below articles online. I really thought this is a channel that should work well for us because people who read articles online are also people who are likely interested in and blinks. So we have a perfect product channel fit. It took a while. It was a really it was really hard to to make that work because the funnel is so long. You have to find the right article, you have to find the right conversion elements, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So it took us almost nine months with a lot of, yeah, we need to be really patient and uh, I needed a lot of conviction to keep going. But fortunately, um, we did. Uh, and then eventually, when, once that channel started to work, we had an even stronger flywheel that was less dependent on Facebook and then added more. There was search, podcast, influencers. So our growth story really between 2015 and 2019 was every every six months, we found a new channel that worked for us. So we, we, we stacked channel on channel on channel to grow customers. We, we grew our library. Obviously, we improved the product and made it better. But the core engine for that phase was a really, really good performance marketing team who um, brought in new customers. Um, and then obviously the product was, was good enough to keep those customers. But yeah, that, 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 that's what fueled it. With that success, we've been able to convince Inside Venture Partners, another big uh, investor from the US, to invest in a Series B in 2016. So, And how much did you raise over that period? I have to check. I, I forgot the exact amounts, but I think our Series B with Insights, so the first money in was, I think, 
seven million, and then the second round was um, was a little north of twenty million. Twenty nineteen was the first year where we really where things got a little more challenging, where we saw like now eventually with our strong focus on paid acquisition, we're hitting a ceiling because eventually there's always with consumer subscription companies you always have churn. Like consumers, um, a lot of people want to use Flinkist, and some don't manage to make a habit, uh, and then they churn. So eventually we got too big. The absolute amount of people of revenue that churns away. We need to bring that in and then something in addition to still grow. Um, so in 2019, we still grew at very high two digit rates, but we saw it, it's not as easy anymore. Based on this trajectory, eventually it's hard to, to build a really big company uh, that is profitable based on just paid acquisition. So in 2020, that got accelerated through COVID. COVID was a really big challenge for us because people like Blinkist was a commute product by then. People used Blinkist on their commute. And all of a sudden, people were not commuting anymore. We're not going outside anymore. So a lot of consumption patterns shifted towards long-form video. The services like Masterclass boomed through the pandemic, Udemy. Um, so we didn't get a good share of that um, pandemic-induced usage. So 2020 was a tough year. Uh, we still grew, but we realized, oh, something is wrong now. It's, it's, it's It doesn't feel as easy anymore. We were still burning money that year. Uh, and we remembered, look, we, we didn't want to go back to 2013, where eventually we were running out of money. Money and we we don't find an investor anymore because we don't have a compelling enough story to put growth on top. So 2020 was the year when we decided to shift to um, to run the company cash flow positive. So I mean it was ultimately driven by the bit by external factors, but I still I'm I'm proud that we managed to do so. And ever since. Uh, we never had to do big layoffs at Blinkist. Uh, so we never had to, we never grew the team so fast that eventually we had to kick 10% or 20% out uh, of the things that happened in the past 12 months uh, to many companies. So even in that, even with the pandemic, which was a really big uh, event that hit us, uh, we were able to just cutting some costs um, that are not, not people related, maybe um, not rehiring for certain positions that, for people that have left, um, uh, with these measures, we were able to 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 land uh, in in cash flow um, cash flow positive land uh, while still growing. And since then, we've we've been steadily growing with a positive cash flow. Felt really good. It felt more like a real business, like not just taking money from investors and 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 burning it, but really now we had a business that was self sustaining, that paid uh, salaries for 107 empl- uh, 170 employees. Um, was really happy that this early lesson from 2013 helped us to take the right decisions uh, when the pandemic hit us and yes since then since 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 2020 it's been steady growth as a business we were um, looking for what, what's the next breakout growth where where does this come from where we can't have breakout growth through paid acquisition um, without burning money um, where does that come from and, and two years ago we started to lean into b2b we saw that we got more and more the the bigger our consumer business grew the more inbound requests we um, we got from companies to use blinkist as a learning tool for their employees in the early days we said like let's not bother with it um, we, we want to focus like our vision and uh vision is to, to grow a big consumer brand but eventually we realized well this is this is what we've been waiting for this is our chance for changing the economics of the business because in in the B2B business, you have much higher renewal rates, better economics. So we started to build a B2B unit. This has also now led to um, to this great exit that we announced yesterday, where we really saw there's so much potential with B2B. Uh, we, we, we proved that it's working. 
and found a good partner who has a strong B2B business, um, who was looking for a consumer brand to fuel that B2B business. And um, yeah, since yesterday, we're, we've teamed up with Go One, um, strong B2B business, a strong B2C business um, to build um, something bigger together. It wasn't that uh, they said, Holger, sell, sell the company now. We want out. Uh, it was really, um, I, I thought it was, a, um, you know, I, I know Andrew from Go Once in three years and really, um, we had a really close relationship. We were, we, we knew from, from the beginning, we, uh, we after the same vision, they focus on B2B, we on B2C. So it always felt like we're working on the same thing. We may get there standalone, but we'll, uh, we'll increase our likelihood of getting there if we, if we join forces. Obviously, it's quite an interesting time in the market, in, in all markets anyway, because of AI. In e-learning and in education in general, what do you think are some of the opportunities and threats that you have to face over the next two to three years? Now you're also a bigger oil tanker, right? What, do, like, what are you thinking about all of these problems or opportunities? So there were moments when, when I was afraid of it. I thought, oh, damn, we are... We have a problem because eventually, you know, I can do what we're doing now um, and we're too late to the party. We're too slow because we're already a big company and we need, um, we're not fast enough in embracing this. I shared this concern with my leadership team. Um, then they said, well, <laughs> all the teams in Atlink is already embracing AI. Uh, we're using AI here, we're using AI there. Our content team, for example, has already done a lot of te tests with text-to-speech, a lot of tests with how, how to fast-track our Blink process with the help of GPT, etc. And when I realized that the team is embracing this and doesn't see it as a threat and, and is shocked, uh, but rather embraces it, tests on, on all different fronts from customer support to content to marketing and, and CRM. Um, that's when I felt like, well, then, then, then we're fine. I hear a lot from, from people that AI can eventually summarize books. GPT-4 can do it, can do a quite well job. If, you know, if the books have been discussed online already, if there's a Wikipedia article, a YouTube video, et cetera, then the AI does a good, good job. If you just feed it the book, um, and let it summarize the book without supporting information from the web. It's not quite there yet, but uh, in a year it will be. Um, so the actual, the, just the factual process of summarizing a long form piece of content into a shorter form, that becomes commodity very soon. But that was, that was always commodity. Um, you could always, even right now, you can find a summary of a book on YouTube, on Wikipedia, on a podcast. You can, there's so much content out there. And with AI, there will be even more content out there. That has never been the problem. The problem has been discoverability, like figuring out, you know, having the right content at the right time. And artistic curation. Artistic curation, right. To, to being let, you know, we all say, I want to learn more. I want to read more. So what? Why don't you do it? Like um, buy, buy the books on Amazon and go for it. But you don't do it. Uh, a, lo a lot of people don't do it. You, you need a smart companion, someone that takes you by the hand, who knows what you want to learn, who you are, who recommends you the right thing with the right context through curation, et cetera, et cetera. We need a UX around it that makes this easier. So I think the content has never been the core value, but everything we've put around. If we don't do it, someone else will do it and eat our lunch. So it's not like I'm not leaning back. We really have to embrace this technology and, and move fast. But I'm not worried that in a year from now, everyone will just chat with their chatbot and say, give me a summary of this book or uh, I want to learn about this. Tell me, uh, because this would require a lot of intent. And most of us don't have that intent. So yeah, I'm, I'm bullish um, for, for the future with AI. What 
is your advice to entrepreneurs who are looking to understand how their products, how their services can survive over the next decade? You know, how can they follow in your footsteps and build a business that uh, can last? That's a good question. I I learned a lot from talking to customers. Uh, I think there's nothing that beats direct interaction with customers. And I don't mean having a user research team that, uh, you know, summarizes uh, the insights for you, but talking to customers uh, for yourself to really develop that musical ear to to listen what they say between the lines what are the what are the the needs that they don't articulate explicitly i think that's really important to always stay ahead of the game and then surrounding yourself with thinking partners uh like don't pretend you can do it alone and you can just develop a vision by staring uh at the wall and 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 then thinking in your head get out there talk to a lot of people um whether it's customers whether it's industry experts whether it's coaches or other entrepreneurs to also building, you know, figuring out what's my product strategy and how how's that product going to look like in five years is one thing. But make sure you have an organization that is capable of getting you there and that sees the opportunities and um, and grasps them. And in this org building, I needed to learn it. I'm, I love marketing, I love product. Um, and, and that's where I gravitate towards to, to focus on that next feature and how it's going to I can't do it anyway. And eventually my focus shifted more and more to building the org to do all these things. Uh, I had to learn to, to, that, uh, to, to love that as well um, because sometimes it's very abstract and formal thinking in structures and systems and all that. Um, you don't need to do it alone. You can't do it alone. It's a marathon and you need support on the way. An amazing answer from a brilliant entrepreneur. Thank you so much, Holger. Thanks for having me, Dan. It was a pleasure. Holger Saim, sharing what it takes to scale. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta. The episode was produced by Sol Harris. It was brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stolliman. Bye for now.